0: Paul Garofolo's formal education is in management information systems, having honed his MIS chops at such big players as Ernst & Young and Oracle after earning his BA, BS, and MIS at the University of Arizona. But after getting a taste of the tech side of the biotech business a few years into his tech career, he made a few moves that ultimately led him to the CEO seat at Locust Biosciences. I'm Matt Piller, and on today's episode of the Business of Biotech, we're going to get to know Paul and what shaped his leadership at Locus, an early-stage developer of precision therapeutics, including bacteriophage, adenovirus, AAV, and other vectors for infectious disease and inflammatory indications. The company has built a modular, single-use GMP manufacturing facility and research triangle, and here to tell us all about that and more is Paul Garofolo. Uh, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Matt. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the time.
0: Oh, well, yeah. No, it's, it's uh, the honor's all mine, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. And uh, I, I do want to get into the Locust Biosciences story shortly, but first I want to talk to you. You know, we we're, we were chatting pre-show. Uh, I covered IT for a long time before I joined the life sciences space. <laughs> you started out in IT uh, with that undergrad in MIS and, you know, worked at, uh, when I say Big tech. I mean, big tech, Ernst & Young, Oracle, um, and then eventually moved into this CTO chair at a, at, a, at a life sciences oriented company, the Broadlane Group. And that occurs to me on paper. It kind of looks like that was the beginning of the transition for you in, into life sciences. But I want to learn a little bit more about that, how uh, how an MIS guy who has uh, you know companies like Oracle on his resume shifts gears and, and winds up uh, playing in
1: the life sciences space. Yeah, no, sure. I actually, um, when I, when I, when I came out of school, um, I actually with a good friend from, from college, we we started in, in 1993, maybe well before it's time. Um, we started in the internet consulting company Mm. and, um, I had been, yeah, that is, let me
0: just let me just comment for those. Listen, for those of a certain age uh, that are considerably younger than us, Paul. Okay, so we, you know, we're we're uh, we're we're yeah. we're like mid 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 century, right? In in the lifespan and in, in the, in the exactly. chronology of our lives. So, th- for those of you who uh, who don't know, uh, who, who didn't experience it, 1993, an internet Surely consulting did. company. So I graduated from high school in 1993, my Surely freshman did. year. of Yes, my freshman year of college, just just for perspective, I'll keep this short. You had to leave your dormitory and walk to a computer lab to send an email. And an email at the time, you had to hit enter at the end of every line. We're talking like, you know, green screen kind of DOS, uh, DOS email. We thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And there was no surfing the internet. So, yes, that is early days for an internet consulting company.
1: Yeah, it's, it's early, early days. And um, it, it went the way that most early day startups uh, go. Uh, we were maybe not in the right geographic area for it, but as well. In, in the early days of the internet, um, content was the big game. And when the newspapers all figured out how to take their articles daily and actually just push them out onto web pages, a whole group of you know lower level sort of consulting companies slash like content providers just basically went under. Mm-hmm. But I had um, that content experience and I actually had uh, left to go to San Francisco to join Ernst & Young, which is sort of the line wh- that you're picking up on from the early days of my career. And because I had had this content Uh, Component of my experience, my first assignment at Ernst and Young was Genentech, Mm -hmm. and I got sent into Genentech in San Francisco and South San Francisco, essentially to help them with their electronic uh, data management platform, and um, that took me into actually manufacturing quality, and then led me into um, lab applications, and eventually into small-scale pilot plant manufacturing. So in the first, really like three or four years of my career, right. Fresh out of school with that MIS degree for the most part. Um, I went straight into, into really the cutting edge of biotech with Genentech. Um, they really were sort of the forefront company of breaking open biotech as a space. And, um, it was a privilege, like honestly, being able to work in Genentech and, and maybe that's, uh, the answer to how does a guy that's IT uh, and or MIS um, get into this industry? I was 23, 24 at the time, and I got assigned to a pharma company. And it has a very powerful magnetic pull, healthcare, because you begin to understand how certain things work in the, in the biopharma industry. And then you just keep parlaying that. So um Broadline you had mentioned broadlane so that was a um was a procure to pay platform that was really helping connect hospitals uh with suppliers back in the early days broadlane was actually the first healthcare based um business to business electronic exchange on the internet
2: mm-hmm. and
1: um I still think that undercurrents of that that are now at Med Assets are are actually probably one of the world's largest transaction platforms that we, uh, we got that up. So basically hospitals could use their ordering systems and behind the scenes, the orders would just flow out to us. We'd process them, check all the pricing, all contracts and send those down to the suppliers. And then as materials would be sent back to the hospitals for consumption, we'd inform them and update their systems as to like what orders were acknowledged and when parts were coming. And anyway, that, um, That sort of led me to the, well, how do people buy drugs and materials uh, and consume them in this space? So I worked at Genentech for years, learning sort of how to produce all this stuff. And I turned over and went to Broadlane and started figuring out how you sell it, um, or I should say order it. And, you know, from there, you just once you have all those sides sort of under your belt, um, it was a really easy leap up into Valiant Pharmaceuticals. And really, if you can't tell, like, I'm not the kind of IT guy that you would ever want touching your computer.
0: Well, it's I'm, funny. I'm, it's let me interrupt you there real quick. It's funny yeah. you should say that because it's it's occurring to me as you're putting these pieces together. Obviously, uh, you, your exposure to the life sciences was way earlier than I thought. But as that exposure and those experiences grew, you know, you you moved to Valiant. You're in the in the uh, CIO seat there, so still in an MIS role, but. You're gathering all these experiences that ultimately and we're going to get to this. How those experiences, you know, yeah. have sort of informed your leadership at, at Locus. Uh But you just made a very important point. Uh, a lot of I, you know, I covered IT for a long time. I spent a lot of time with propeller heads, Paul. I mean, these these <laughs> there, there are a lot of guys who not only not only I don't
1: only, have a propeller anymore. I just have a bald spot. But right? no, Where and I, I don't mean
0: to. Yeah. And I don't mean to speak disparagingly of, of, of that crew. Uh, you know, they, they play a very important role, but many of them, not, not only would I not want like messing with my, uh, with my desktop, I wouldn't necessarily want leading my, my company. Um, mm-hmm. what, what is it that you think is unique about your, your, your personality that, uh, it enabled that, I guess, Mm, I don't know, I'm not sure what the word is, but uh, the ability to kind of learn and embrace beyond the the tunnel vision that so many folks in highly technical fields tend to dwell in.
1: I mean, I probably credit it back to just, um, honestly, both degree in MIS, which is really about the flow of information more than it is anything about computers or hardware, and then mm. take that forward into management consulting with Ernst & Young and To immediately start really working on value propositions related to business process improvements.
2: Yeah.
1: So you know you're looking at. I mean, my first assignment was to take ten thousand quality documents that were all on paper, Virgin Intech, and get them into an electronic system that five thousand employees could reference and get through faster. And then move to do the same thing in the lab, and then the same thing on a manufacturing floor, and the common theme is you're, you're always working on the business processes. And so in order to set up those software applications correctly in those areas of the business, you, you have to understand that the, the business uh, and the core processes that drive those functions. Then you turn around one day. I mean, I've been in the game for, I don't know, 30 plus years at this point. You turn around one day and realize you don't really know very much about computers. You you know about all of Mm -hmm. the systems and all of the processes that drive the business in this space. And um, Valiant was great for that, by the way, because um, Valiant was uh, operating, selling product in 160 countries, so pretty much every country in on the planet. They had manufacturing sites when I started. We had 72 different contract manufacturing sites and something like 15 of our own. And um, you, know, you you just work on all kinds of different things. We worked on consolidating all that manufacturing down um, so that we had maybe in the ballpark of like 30 external vendors and six sites. And you gotta transfer all the products and it you know, really doesn't have much to do with IT after a while, but we wrapped an SAP implementation around all that work. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're, you're learning everything really to get it yeah. to work. Right. You're learning all the financials of how to run a business. You're learning everything about how to actually advance a product into the, in, in essentially through manufacturing. And so, um, the other thing that was both fortunate and unfortunate, unfortunate for the company, but maybe very fortunate for me is I was there when, um, our lead phase three asset veramidine failed. And, um, there was a call to rebuild R&D. And, um, you know, for whatever reasons, when you peel back the onion well, why did Brambadine fail? um, You get to a core pearl of that onion and and say to yourself, well, some some of the processes that revolve around uh, project management, program management, review and approval of of key inflection points like protocols, just wasn't flowing the way that the executive team wanted. And um, I can't really explain this one to you, Matt, but I got tapped to go in and and really do the business process transformation in Mm R&D. And we we rebuilt everything um, from the ground up. And so that was kind of the final piece for me. Um, I had done manufacturing platforms. I had done quality platforms. I'd done sales platforms. And then to go in and and hit the R&D group. Um, And again, sort of, you could say it was it led i think it was more business transformation led yeah and um that's how i that's how it built my career is just really deeply understanding these different aspects of biopharma
2: yeah
0: yeah it's, it occurs to me that there's sort of two two planes going on in 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 these formative uh formative slash informative years one is experiences and the other is uh closely related but perspectives so you you know you're were, you were on the outside kind of looking in and working for life sciences for as a consultancy vendor supplier whatever you want to call it then you went to work directly for uh this the uh the the biopharma ph- bio biopharma community in, in valiant um and and got all those experiences and and so there's one more that i want to hit on though that i think is is, is kind of key and that and that's your experience at Paytheon. so so you went there in 2011 and it occurs to me lo- looking at that, that you made this shift into, you know, manufacturing clinical operations which I'm sure, you know, kind of came dovetailed nicely with, with, with your experience leading up to that. But then there's also this aspect of, of business development, um, that, that you took on there and, and that as a CEO, you know, as the leader of a, of a biopharma company, um, Another skill, perhaps, that doesn't come naturally to neither scientist nor uh, MIS professional, right? Sales, putting on yeah. your, your pitching hat, uh, raising raising money. You know, being that lead biz dev guy. Um, did you, did you, is, is was Paytheon sort of your your primary, I guess, exposure um, to that? I, or?
1: it was certainly where I was directly in charge of um, some some deals and deal components. I had been involved for years. And I think every executive of every major company, when you're doing any type of transaction, you know, you get involved, Mm -hmm. Um, you review your parts and pieces, you have your your front line sent in to analyze, you know, what to do and what not to do. But I mean, I I guess to make a long story short on that, um, Paytheon move, which was an awesome experience for me. I I love that uh, company and the people that work there. Um, I didn't have a Ph.D., And I was running operations worldwide for uh, essentially 450 different small molecule and large molecule compounds um, through the process of formulation and process development all the way through clinical trial materials. So very, very manufacturing operations heavy, but all with experimental drugs. And um, not having a PhD, you just can't really break through organically in some of these big companies up to the top ranks of executive posts. And I was, I was certainly top 10 uh, in the company and very appreciative to be there. Um, at any rate uh, I had gotten, eventually had gotten to the point where I got passed up for an opportunity because I didn't have that PhD. Sure. And I, I took the opportunity. I, I really, I worked for Jim Mullen at the time, the old uh, ex CEO of Biogen IDEC, great guy. And, he gave me the opportunity to go to Harvard um, at a fairly late age in my career. I think I was maybe 43 when I went to Harvard. I did their advanced management program, um, which I I think is probably one of the key inflection points in my life, to be honest with you. And I had always been able to run a PL, but to understand all the other aspects of strategy and financials and you know, everything through everything that gets you through to understanding sort of macroeconomics, all the way down through into negotiations and i came back from that experience and um jim had been uh really working through quietly on the side this major transaction and i could smell it from a mile away and i I wanted to get involved in that and Mm -hmm. so we we moved me into business development to really do the merger between Paytheon and DSM Pharma. And it was a a really successful run. It was a $3.5 billion transaction. Um, We brought together what I think are probably some of the absolute most strategic contract manufacturing capabilities around the world. Uh, That DSM uh, uh, and Paytheon merger became a company fairly temporarily called DPX that, that is now uh, the cornerstone of Thermo Fisher's contract manufacturing arm. And I mean, great, great company to be a part of. I mean, it was really fun to get the chance to work on a massive transaction like that. I think we had, I, it took like nine months to get the job done um, and get everything through all the different exchanges. And what we really sort of learned in taking I mean, you just learn a lot, right? You take public companies private,
2: Mm -hmm. you
1: know, you you work through all the different works councils internationally, Um, you know, you're putting different puzzle pieces together of different sites, different capabilities, putting together theories of how you're going to both get, you know, revenue growth as well as cost synergies. And so there's a whole strategy component behind pulling off one of those. And it was a really sound argument. And it was just really fun to be a part of. And I, I don't I don't know if I could have been more lucky, right? You come out of this Harvard program, sort of two months sequestered up in Boston at HBS, learning all these things and turn around and get tapped to, to do this massive transaction. Yeah. Um, it was just like, and some of it's just serendipity that it just a great sure. time, but some of it's desire and, you know, wanting to sort of expand into that stuff and, I learned the time. and I,
2: so, I yeah, I, 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 I
0: it. yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it's, we we just put on a little, uh, I, I don't know, a fifteen minute master class for MIS people who want to move into uh, biotech leadership. Like, you know, you look at it on paper, you're like, well, hmm, that's interesting, but then you you start talking about it, and it all makes perfect sense uh you just mentioned desire you know you 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 kind of balance serendipity and and desire at what point um in this sort of in the continuum of your career trajectory did the desire to be a a CEO of a of an emerging biotech kind of take hold of paul garofalo's body and consume him because it has I, to <laughs>
1: yeah i mean i it's a good question i mean certainly Heading into the program at Harvard, I was well on the way of wanting to physically, you know, be in charge of either a major business unit of a of a multinational corporation or find a way to be CEO of an entity. And I mean, there probably was a, a very strong realization coming out of Harvard, um, you know, for being a biopharma executive that didn't have a PhD, the only way to actually materialize that opportunity for being a CEO was to, was to make it Mm -hmm. and um, like do it yourself. And, and then you get to the next question of, well, well, can you do it? Uh, And, and do you have something of real value that you want to be able to, to do something meaningful for society with, and, you know, that's where a little bit of the serendipity does come in into play. Um, and I don't know what rabbit hole you, you might want to go down in the conversation, but I knew once the merger was done that I was ready to move back to what I call high science, um, really developing drug products and not necessarily running a, a let's say a contract services type of business mm-hmm. um and that that consulting by the way matt like consulting and service delivery and account management that's a common thread through all 30 years of my career it still is today mm-hmm. with the major deals that we have inside of Locus. Mm-hmm. and um that that's another core uh um component i think of the skill set to get there but I actually had offered myself up in the merger as what they call cost synergy, which essentially means like, hey, we got this to a great inflection point, like I'm ready to tap out and go do something else. And um, I always kind of joke about this, you know, Jim and the board of directors were like, hey, okay, but you did put this whole strategy together why don't you do the post merger integration and make sure that strategy that you know theoretically you sold everybody on works and so um that was super cool and i actually agreed to do that a- as a consultant so that's where the
2: okay. consultant
1: piece comes into play so so because it was easier to do with people knowing that i wasn't one of the long term executives i was just there to steward by getting this thing to the right place, which obviously worked, uh, since it flipped up again the Thermo Fisher. And um, while I was sort of ramping down, that it was really about a year, maybe a little bit longer, to do that work. I started to offer up my um, just my time as an executive and resident at NC State, mm-hmm. and I was looking for. What would I do next? Uh, and sort of wanted to go back to high science, states a great school. I was kind of sort of haunting around UNC Chapel Hill as well as Duke uh, and NC State. Those are the three schools that are really dominant, and it's Wake Forest as well. But um, at any rate, yeah, you know, this kid walked into this program, this entrepreneurship program with this technology, CRISPR-Cas3, and was like, I, what do we do with this? And you scratch your head, like, how did you get that piece of tech this far uh, without somebody gobbling this thing up and trying to figure out, you know, what to do with it? And um, there you go. Right. You got basically like a Fortune 500 executive who's sitting there looking for something yeah. uh, at the same time as something walks in a door. That's the serendipity part. Right. Like yeah. there is no way for me to control that one. I was just maybe right place, right time um, and fortunate to be there, but you do have to want to go to high science. You do have to want to offer up your time to help other people. And you do have to be uh, you know, willing to take some pretty large risks um, to get one of these things started. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm super happy that I did. I I'm much happier. Doing what I mean, the stress levels through the roof, Matt, sure. but yeah. but that the like excitement and thrill of what we're doing and, and and what it could mean for society is um, it's just really fun to come to work every day and and work with that. Uh, and yep. and really the, the team that we've built, it's it's amazing, it's really fun.
0: So, yeah, so that this was 20, 2015, the the serendipity that you that you reference. Um, and and what did you start with? Is that, is that what you started with?
1: Uh, a technology, yeah. an idea, a couple of yeah. folks. So we have, So I don't know how much you know about the sort of gene therapy or precision, uh, precision medicine space, but um, these days it's 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 all the sort of you know strategies, if you will, to to drive you know therapeutics that have payloads and delivery vectors, right? So mm-hmm. you take a protein or enzyme of some kind that, that does something like CRISPR-Cas9 edits, you know, makes a precision cut in the genome and, and, and creates a location for you to do something, Uh, but you got to get it there. Right. So what we had started the company with was really the payload. We knew we had a payload. We knew we had, we had this CRISPR-Cas3, arena, not, not necessarily fully locked up because the intellectual property back then was the wild, wild west. Um, but we knew we had this uh, enzyme that basically worked like a Pac-Man. So it was it was not a precision, uh, you know, editing tool. Sorry, that was a uh, you know a scissor cut. Scissor, yeah. time, right? It was a Pac-Man. Like you get this thing to latch on to a strand of DNA, and it it just chews back and and basically permanently kills um one one side of the double helix of, of a target you know genome and it renders the cell dead and so here you go you have this massive you know uh ability to be able to essentially do precision killing and um how do you get it there and the the most people don't know this about CRISPR. honestly it's um it's a strange thing people don't realize it but a CRISPR uh, CRISPR is a defense mechanism for bacteria. It's actually bacteria are single cell organisms. They got to survive individually. And um, one of the ways they do that is they basically have these enzymes inside of them that protect against invaders. And mm-hmm. CAS3 is the most dominant of those uh, enzymes that get recruited by the by the core CRISPR addressing function. And so um, everybody was paying attention to CAS9 and nobody was really paying attention to cast three so we moved really fast to gobble up intellectual property we we started the company off with like three or four different delivery vectors that could have been possible and um you know went to work with lawyers basically making sure we filed the patents get freedom to operate and then um about six or so months into the endeavor it all came back clear and, and then it was a gut check moment, right? I was sort of beyond the stage of where I could personally just write checks by myself to advance it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it just looked great. And it, it looked like it had the real possibility of changing the way that we remove bacteria from the human body. Yeah. And that part has great promise.
0: The business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at citivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech That's C-Y-T-I-V-A, com backslash Emerging Biotech. Yeah, and I want to get into that. So uh, we'll we'll get more into the technology. I've got some questions around that, but, you know, let's talk about that opportunity for a minute, the business opportunity in the market. Um, So removing bacteria from the body, you know, to date, I I think, uh, you know, um, standards of care are vexed by this challenge of you know keeping the good stuff and removing the bad stuff and i understand if i'm if i'm reading this correctly again not a scientist but if i'm if I'm looking into this correctly um your approach looks to solve that problem to some degree right focusing on the the, the bad stuff in uh um in, in infectious bacterial disease um so so tell me tell me a little bit about that what, what is the the and i don't not not from a tech standpoint but but from the market standpoint, like what opportunity does that create for, for locust bioscience?
1: So uh, I'll start at the high level and then maybe work my way down. So I think the world of science and medicine is, is beginning to wake up that inflammation in the human body is likely the cause of a lot of disease Mm -hmm. and whether that's exacerbating symptoms, or that you might already be genetically predisposed to, or whether that's bringing early onset of those same genetic um, defects, if you will, or whether in many cases, it's just long term exposure creates, you know, the right environmental conditions to build the disease. Um, That inflammation, I think is is well understood that it's likely caused by the bacteria that's in your body, right? Mm-hmm. So if you need look at, uh, take a look at rheumatoid arthritis, right? It's inflammation in the joints, very possibly bacteria related. You could look at certainly like ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, bacteria in the gut that the immune system's just attacking and immune system can't turn off. It just keeps going until it starts shredding your intestines. Um, yeah, likely bacterial related, and if, if you look at the just overlay from a strategic perspective, right? A hundred years ago, we discovered antibiotics, so um, they were the miracle drugs. The entire industry map in pharma was built on antibiotics. It was yeah. built on hundreds of millions of possible patients around the world. These miracle drugs that basically you took. They just essentially carpet bomb your bacteria and they don't infect human cells. They 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 were curing you of just about every ailment possible. And so why ever try to figure out for the next hundred years what specific bacteria is having what specific impact on your on your, on a human being or on that specific disease? And so we didn't pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. And science largely did not pay attention to what what is the role that good versus bad bacteria play in human disease and um, so we didn't look for tools we didn't build tools we didn't go after answering some of those questions and um, you know to this day I still think that people are very scared about the math of figuring out, how to get at that bacterial equation, right? You, you you could say, oh, well, you, I don't know if you know this or not, right? The body's made up of who knows, anything from six to 10 trillion cells at any given point in time. And you know, depending on what time of day and the meals that you're eating, you know, maybe upwards of 60 to 70 percent, maybe even more at some points in the day, maybe 80% of the cells in your body, which there's only two types of cells in your body, human cells eukaryotic and bacteria cells, prokaryotic. So if, if if 60 to 80% of the cells in your body every day are bacteria cells, why, why, why did we not pay attention to those for a century? Because antibiotics. Well, now one day, sometime soon enough, but maybe not eminently in front of our face, those antibiotics aren't going to work. And so I think you've seen a massive amount of, of, Sort of inflection and thinking about you know, how are we going to get at this problem. Um, but unfortunately, that that actually coincides with sort of the genericization of all these initial drugs that built all these companies, right? They're old technologies, they're now right. fully genericized, it costs a couple pennies per pill. And you know, in the old days when they worked 90, 95% of the time, no problem. Well, some of them. Some of them don't work at all anymore, and some yeah. of them are only working at about fifty to seventy percent and um, we'll see we will see where all of these market conditions collide. We hope to be on that wave right we hope yeah. to be yeah. on that wave when it breaks how do you uh <clears throat>
0: How are you? <laughs> a, I'm not sure how to pose the question. You you acknowledged, so you acknowledged from the outside of the conversation that you were um, ahead a little bit too far ahead of the curve as far as your internet uh, consultancy went in 1993. <laughs> how how are you ensuring that you're not too far ahead of the curve uh, on this endeavor? Because it, it that affects everything, right? It affects your financing. It affects your yeah. clinical path. It it affects your mark- marketability, your commercial success.
1: So. So we'll see if I'm right about this, but my <laughs> my my we'll see. We'll see if all of that Harvard stuff actually works. Yeah. But the um the the one way you can really break open a massive disruption is to uh and create something new, is to dominate a niche and then grow from there. So we chose early days to concentrate on pathogenic threats and infectious disease and, and it, 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 let's see if I can explain this. you know what a MRSA infection is yeah staff mm-hmm. infection that's resist most people know what MRSA is. they very well defined that that's staff. Um, so all you really need to do is get staff out. Nobody's going to argue that that's not the right underlying cause. Um, it is a singular target to be able to prove out you know your precision approach. And so pretty much all pathogens were 80% of recurrent urinary tract infections are um, E. coli, the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of lung infections for, you know, groups like cystic fibrosis patients are, are really honed into pseudomonas primarily mm-hmm. uh, and staff. So you sort of, there's these areas of infectious disease. In, in in really sort of the antibacterial space, that are very much one single pathogen, very well understood. Now, all the drugs that are treated are these broad spectrums, but infectious disease, the mechanism is is well understood. The market's bad because this is where generic antibiotics are. So the investors look at that space and say, uh, "How are you going to make money here?" Yeah. So, so we, we'll talk about that. We take that to the side. The vision for the company is more related to consortia of bacteria. So like ulcerative colitis or, you know, let's say dementia, uh, autism. I mean, you name it, where people are beginning to identify that inflammation is, is related. And there's lots of ways to get inflammation, but certainly bacteria is one of the dominant theories that bacteria causes inflammation in the body. You have to know what that consortia is. Mm -hmm. You like to say like you have patients with ulcerative colitis, which bacteria actually cause that? And that's where academic research and science honestly still needs to catch up, and somebody needs to be able to say, well, this block of five or ten bacteria. So the strategy for our company was dominate infectious disease, become the de facto new modality to address the rising threat of multi-drug resistance. Dominate that space where there's not billions of dollars of investment flowing in. There's not thousands of companies that are trying to merge get into that space. Dominate that space, get the technology working, and then leapfrog into these other therapeutic areas. And, and that's right where Locus is today. We are attempting to make that move from infectious disease up into immunology specifically for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's mm-hmm. and, and making some pretty serious headway on that. We, we hope that great things happen in 2022 and beyond, um, making that leap forward. And, and frankly, we think oncology is the next space mm-hmm. in working to, I mean, people have long believed that certain long-term exposure to bacteria causes colorectal cancer, third largest cancer that ails the planet today and you know if we can remove the bacteria that is exposing people to colorectal cancer you save millions of lives yeah and so um you know it's a it's it's an interesting strategy um that we'll we'll see there have been some very challenging market dynamics over the course of the seven years that the company has been going um but we do seem to be navigating through that really well. We have a billion dollars in deals. Uh, We're working with the likes of Johnson & Johnson and Health and Human Services via the BARDA administration. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're working on the top four bacterial threats and infectious disease uh, collectively with our our partners. Uh, We're 80 people deep. We've got our own manufacturing facility. Like we're we're cranking. Um, We're making real progress towards this, towards this vision
2: yep.
1: and we, we don't have all the parts and pieces that we need that, sure. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, it's, it's still an entrepreneurial endeavor and we work really, really hard. Um, but it's a, it's a really smart team and, yeah. and, and they can do some, I, I think we can do some, we'll see if our timing is right. If our timing's right, Matt, we'll change the world.
0: Well, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I certainly didn't mean to, uh, to, to, to question your timing. I was just curious, no, you know, from no, the leader's leader's perspective, you know, how, yeah. how you're uh, safeguarding, right. Putting, putting up some, some, um, <laughs> some insulation around that, uh, the potential that you're ahead of, ahead of the curve, but I mean the, the, you know, the unmet medical need and the impending, um, I guess, you know, demise, if you will, that's probably a strong term, but of the, um, you know, uh, uh, of the um, the 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 space in terms of you know fighting bacterial infection, uh, per the status quo is uh, is cer- certainly indicates that it's good timing. Uh, you mentioned uh, another thing that I wanted to dig into: um, your uh, GMP manufacturing facility uh, in in house. So that's that's. You, you're a, you know, you're an expatheon guy. You, you worked in out, outsourced pharma for a long time and then you start this company and you think, well, let's, let's do it ourselves. Uh, so take us through the rationale there.
1: Yeah. So this gets maybe a, a little bit technical and a, and then maybe a little bit more strategic. So sure. phage, bacteria phage. So our business, we make precision uh, um, therapeutics by essentially taking a virus that only attacks bacteria cells. And we basically engineer CRISPR-Cas3 Pac-Man-like tools into Mm -hmm. the genomes. And then we send them into the human body. And so um, having been in manufacturing for many, many, many years, when you have a large molecule um, manufacturing facility, there's really two things that um, terrify you. One is mold. That will shut down your site real easy, mm-hmm. which you know you're dealing with liquids so, and, and drains and water lines and all kinds of stuff. So it's it's not that hard to get mold, unfortunately, if you're not paying attention to keeping your site uh, up to up to par. Yeah. Uh, and the second is phage, because phage, if you if you have what's called the phage out. It, it'll rip through your bacterial cell lines that are used for your core amplification or reaction cycle that you're making your drug. It'll wipe it. It'll wipe it all out. So mold and phage are the two things I spent a career making sure did not get into a plant. And mm-hmm. so now what we're trying to do is actually grow this virus. And nobody well in the early days of, of locusts you sort of went back to some of my old friends were like hey you want to make some of these viruses for us and like come on man you know the answer to that like no way you can't come anywhere close to our sites you can give us 20 million dollars and build another building on the side of one of our plants and we'll do it for you and of course you know do that math it didn't cost us 20 million dollars to make the plant it wasn't that far off matt honestly but mm-hmm. um you know we we also looked at. Viral vector production capacity, capabilities. And, and really, we're, we're, I mean, interestingly enough, we are so far out on the edge, Matt, of, of doing this sort of precision medicine with phage and, and CRISPR. This nobody knows the technology better than us at this point. Nobody knows how to manufacture it better than us. And if we really, you know, our, our drug products are actually combinations of anywhere from three to eight different phage that Mm -hmm. we weaponize with the exact same crispr cas three cassette and and other enzymes frankly and um you know our production runs are are really equivalent to to doing eight simultaneous large molecule runs for somebody else and then Mm -hmm. we take those and combine them into a single drug and then file that with the fda So
0: if if you did outsource, you're you're saying like it it would require um, you'd have some big capacity demands
1: and you'd just get crushed. I mean, it's a little it's it's not the same as a a regular, uh, I'll say, like a monoclonal antibody or I I don't want to get too technical for the call. But it's it's not the same as a normal large molecule production process because phage grows like wildfire, Mm -hmm. whereas usually like cell production does not. And so the traditional large molecule production process involves an ever-increasing escalation of larger tanks,
2: mm-hmm. and you're
1: sort of switching from a small tank and siphoning off a certain amount of live cells, usually like 10% when, you're, when your amp cycle is done. You get rid of that 90% waste, you get that 10%, you put in a larger tank, do it again, take the 10%, move it to a larger tank, do it again, do it again, do it again if we throw this thing into a five liter, 200 liter, 2000 liter tank in 24 to 48 hours, we got five liters, 200 liters, 2000 liters of of what we call lysate. And then that has to be cleaned. It has to be purified. It has to be polished. And then it has to be viled. And, um, these are all things that never scared me. And I think, it's it's really created a massive competitive advantage for us because we can move faster than anybody else can. We control the cost of our goods, so we can we have real real flexibility with what we could price this at. And we've we've got the ability that if mistakes are made, we can get right back on our own lines and, and really fix the mistakes and, and get the drugs ready. And not just you know I don't, most people don't know this, but eighty five percent of uh, emerging technology development runs into manufacturing challenges and delays that equal i'm a little dated i haven't been in that direct space for years but usually you're dealing with a minimum or an average i'll say of of a 12-month delay and if you're running one of these companies matt and you all of a sudden get a 12-month delay and a 10 million dollar bill you're in trouble
2: yeah
0: yeah, um, and and I th- so that part of the 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 presentation to the board, if you will, or or investors for that matter, right? Uh, I, I get it was pretty pretty cut and dried. Um, what was there a challenge? I'm curious about your uh, your approach to um, raising the funds to build and maintain this, this this facility, especially given the fact that what you're doing is um, not common or, or proven, right? Like you, you're not, you're not you, you could easily go to a, an investment community and say, you know, we've developed a new monoclonal antibody. We all know they work. We all know they're popular. It's, you know, to, to treat COVID, let's say um, the facility that I need to build. Uh, there's a roadmap. Like we, we, you know, we've seen it, we've done it. Everybody's done it. Like build, you know, building a, a facility to process monoclonal antibodies is not uh, new territory. You get that investment. Let, let's go. The market opportunity is there. It's easy to build. You know, we, we can do it cheaply. Let's go. I don't mean to belittle the monoclonal.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Everything was great there except the easy to build. Easy is
0: a relative term. It's a relative term. Yeah,
1: I guess so. Um, well, one, I do think that there have been. Um, it, it's a unique path that we took. Right, and it, and some of it was forced from the modality, this phase modality, where we just were boxed in and and kind of had to do it. Mm-hmm. But the the other part of it was our partnerships, right? So I I I, I want to give some really uh, maybe unique credit to the strategics, which maybe most people kind of complain about because they're big and they're they're kind of slow. And believe me, all that is true um but the but they're they're very much the better strategic strategic thinkers than the investment pools Mm -hmm. that the strategics are much more involved with trying to save patients lives they just but the investors are trying to figure out how to make money that the strategics are trying to think about how do i get drugs for this unmet need or this massive need and so um I think it was very, very clear to Johnson & Johnson that we needed to have a plant. I guess we were very fortunate that I knew a few people over at Johnson & Johnson from my old days of providing services. I think when we and we went out to the whole contract world and got bids of what it would take to do the manufacturing, and it was really clear like, hey, we're going to have a lot more freedom and flexibility if we just do this ourselves. It certainly didn't hurt that I was the chief technology officer and head of worldwide operations for. 450 compounds right because when i went to my board and said hey i want to spend x amount of money to do this and i'm going to use some of the proceeds from our johnson and johnson deal and i'm going to lean on some of the expertise that's inside yanson pharmaceuticals to get this done it raises everybody's confidence level and um and it worked and it worked really well and not it's not just us that has the benefit of that speed and that capability, it's our partners. And so the way we financed it was on that, we basically took, and maybe this is the deal part from my past, um, but we took the sort of the, the future promise of proceeds from our deals and we lined up debt on top of that forward-looking revenue stream. And we essentially used a combination of proceeds and, and borrowings to build the plant. Yeah. And and now it runs on revenues.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I, and I imagine that you, you mentioned, uh, you know, what, what instilled confidence in the board. I imagine the fact, uh, that that your background lends to, you know, my, my perception that you were probably during the build out, you know, putting on safety goggles, throwing a hard head on, rolling up your sleeves and, and, and if, if not involved in certainly, uh, present and observing the, the build out. Um, I'm looking at the clock here. Paul and uh, we're we're running way short on time. I feel like uh, we could spend the rest of the day talking, but I want to I want to give you an opportunity. Just a couple last questions. I want to give you an opportunity to give us an update on your clinical journey, that, what that what that path looks like right now. I mean, you 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 alluded to it a, a few times uh, as to where you started and, and and where you sort of see things headed. Um, but what's uh, what are some next big clinical steps?
1: Yeah, so we are about to enter a phase two proof of efficacy trial. Um, it's a, a urinary tract infection caused by E. coli. I okay. always tell people it's the same thing Hugh Hefner died from. That gets people's minds sort of around um, the, the problem. If you if if you are um, if you get repeated recurrent urinary tract infections, mm-hmm. whether you're a young woman. And that's sort of plaguing, you know, your early, you know, years is in, in your twenties and thirties, or whether you're, you know, sort of of geriatric age and you're sort of in a long-term care facility and getting routinely catheterized, or, or even if you have an accident and you go into the hospital and have a procedure. And if you pick up a urinary tract infection and, and, and you get treated initially and the infection comes back at your 80% likely that it's E. coli,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and, uh, you're also in trouble. Uh, and so we, that's our drug. Our drug is to address that. So we are about to essentially go after about 250 patients, maybe more, mm-hmm. um, to essentially prove that when you dose our product in combination with standard care, um, you don't have to worry about the recurrence. Okay. You take care of it. Yep. And, and not, so, that, and maybe this is a good thing to understand that, that they, uh, and maybe this is a little bit crazy too, but I think it's the right way to go. Um, that's 10 million patients a year. How many drugs do you hear of, Matt, on your show where the patient population is orphan drug designation or smaller than a couple hundred thousand patients per year? Quite a that's few. Not, that's yeah. not what we're going after. Yeah. We're going after 10 million patients we're going back after the gigantic markets that made our industry yeah and that that's a strategic risk but if, it, if we crack that open that even on our first drug um we'll become a new de facto standard of using precision drugs to deal with bacteria just like we're talking about using precision drugs in, in on the human cell side we lead the push To deal with precision medicines on the bacterial side. And we're we're starting with those infections, like the urinary tract infection. It'll take us, it'll, it'll probably take us 18 months, maybe even 20 months to get that trial done. We think we're gonna get that trial started, probably the tail end of Q1, beginning of Q2 next year. Mm -hmm. And so sometime in 2023, we'll be reading out that data. And and if it if it works, Matt, all these other drugs that we have in the pipeline, we've got two that are coming forward with johnson and johnson we got another one that's coming forward with a, a a combination of a group called carbex that is is really sort of a child entity to Barta. um you know all those drugs essentially solve what, what really are are sort of the four biggest bacterial threats um, that are in the, the world of mdr and um I had mentioned earlier that jump to sort of consortia and working on ulcerative colitis. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it proves the mechanism works if we're right with this lead asset. And then I think it'll be even easier to leapfrog over into immunology, oncology, central nervous system disorders, anywhere where inflammation is playing. But we, we are we're on the precip. It's taken us seven years and, and $110 million to get to this point. And, um, we're super proud of that, especially in, in, in the face of all those other challenges I was describing to you. I think we're, we're very happy with where we are and we're really, ha- Barta is our partner on that lead asset, we're, we're working on this asset together with them. And, um, you know, in in two years, we're going to know, yeah, pretty true. exciting.
0: That is very exciting. Certainly keeping, keeping good company uh, along the way. Uh, final question. You mentioned uh, a little, little bit ago that you're still still a startup, right? Still in that mode uh, and still putting a few pieces together. What's, what's the beyond, beyond the clinical progress that needs to happen? What's the next big, I guess, business piece that uh, that perhaps you, you're working on as, as leader? What's the next big step for the business or big, big thing that kind of has to come into place?
1: So We, I mean there's I'm a strong believer in um in stacking. And so there's there's probably three or four different call them dominoes that, that could fall and knock over the other ones. I mean, we're we're always seeking um funding. We're always seeking partners. Um, and frankly, we're always seeking new technology to add to the mix. Um I think you could see us do something in any one of those three and or all of those three in the next Mm -hmm. 12 months. And, um, you know, it's, as you probably know from being around this for a little while, if those come to pass, those will be from years of effort in stacking those dominoes and preparing for them to fall. And, um, we're getting pretty close on a number of those. Uh, and you know, sometimes you knock one over and the other two or three just, fall right over with it. And sometimes yeah. you knock one over and you look around you're like, why didn't the other ones fall? <laughs> so, you know, it, we'll see what, what the future holds, but I think there's some exciting times ahead for, for Locus in 2022.
0: Yeah. Well, I, uh, I look forward to seeing those exciting times. We'll, we'll be following along with the story, Paul. Uh, it's an exciting one. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I learned a ton, uh, and I appreciate the time. I'm sure our audience learned a ton too. So a lot, a <laughs> lot of value in the conversation.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. This was great. I really appreciate being able to share some of the story, and I appreciate you taking a, an interest in my background. and It's it's uh, it's fun. This was great. Thank oh, you. it's
0: no it's no fun talking to somebody who you don't you don't know, right? Yeah,
2: don't,
0: that's great. That's I don't great. know where they came from. So that's Locust Biosciences, Paul Garofolo. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the business of biotech. We are produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva, which demonstrates its commitment to new and emerging biopharma at CitivaLifesciences dot com backslash emerging biotech. Check that site out. Check us out at bioprocessonline dot com where I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. And if you're enjoying the business of biotech, please subscribe, give us five stars, and thanks for listening.